Hello, hello. It's episode four of Fish Plus Data Equals Amazing here on the Inner Tidal Pod. This episode, I get to be joined in a conversation with three people who have been on this fisheries data literacy journey with me now for almost a good year. Katie Latonich. Kim Gordon. Emily Franca. Katie and Kim are the former co-directors of the Fisheries Leadership and Sustainability Forum, a program that produced events and trainings and educational materials for anyone who has been part of the U.S. fishery management process. Scientists, agency staff, fishermen, unsuspecting members of the public who just wandered into a hotel conference room and suddenly found themselves on an advisory panel. Emily is a fellow graduate of the University of Washington School of Marine and Environmental Affairs, like me, and who's worked on fisheries issues on both the East and the West Coast. And I've recently had the pleasure of working with her on some great fisheries tech and electronic monitoring events. I'll let them all talk more about their backgrounds, but let's get going. Everyone, let's start with fish. So Katie, tell us what got you excited about fish. What made you first started wanting to work on fish? Well, what first got me interested in working with fish was probably as simple as going fishing. So I live in Beaufort, North Carolina, and it's a great place to go fishing and to work on fish and ocean science. And we have a lot of all of those things going on. So I think it's just a, a love of going fishing and being on the water and wanting to understand how everything works. So um, I've been working in fisheries for going on well, close to 20 years now. Um, so I worked as a, a port sampler and worked with the state and worked for the aquarium a while and worked with a group called the Fisheries Forum for a long time that helps um, facilitate conversations around fisheries science and management. And what I love working about fisheries is working on projects that really help make kind of cutting edge science something that everybody can use and appreciate. Tell us, Kim, what got you excited about fish? Well, um, in my younger formative years, I was a lover of the ocean and a science geek. Um, and later as I, I evolved, I, I found policy and just the uniqueness and the intersection of people and nature um, and just the, the complexities of natural resource management. So I um, found myself really being drawn to this nexus of management, and science, and, and people, and process, um, and also worked with the Fisheries Forum um, for a large part of my career. Emily, what got you into this watery world? So I actually grew up in the Midwest, but I did grow up on the shores of Lake Michigan. So I've always loved the water. Um, and similar to Katie, I actually spent um, some time in Beaufort, North Carolina, um, and was exposed to coastal and marine fisheries and sort of fell in love with the field. Um, and then I spent some time working on fisheries management in the Chesapeake Bay before moving to the West Coast. So I've been lucky enough to work on both, both coasts um, on fisheries issues and I've only recently been uh, getting my feet wet with the sort of fisheries data uh, issues. Well, that's a good segue because I think for all three of you, you'd all worked on fisheries and oceans and coastal issues from a variety of different angles. And then our worlds intersected one way or another. And I said, have you thought about 
fisheries from a data perspective? Have you thought about putting a data lens on things and thinking about how the data moves through fisheries, not asked, not just how the fish move through the water or how the fish move through the supply chain from bait to plate, but have you thought about the data side of fisheries? So I'm curious what I first started going on about the data side of fisheries, what were some of your thoughts and responses? What made you think, huh, maybe I want to have a conversation about this? I think one of the things that that really piqued my interest when we first started talking about data um, was you made a statement about, you know, data is a big is a big word. Um, and I had just I'd never really thought about data very much. I'd been a consumer of data. Um, but it was just really this, this magical thing that just showed up on charts and graphs in front of me. Um, and I never really thought about kind of the, the infrastructure and the process and all of the decisions that kind of underwrite how that little plot gets on my piece of paper. Um, and I think, you know, we kind of talked about what, what good data is, um, and that, you know, data is something that meets the needs of our, of our process. And so it's not always about more. Um, it's about what's best for, for your use at hand. Um, on, on, on a bit to what Kim said, um, what really piqued my interest in talking about data was um, similar to Kim realizing how many steps there are between the people who submit and share their data and then the people who make decisions about it. And then in turn, the people who are then impacted by those decisions. Um, it's really, uh, it's kind of like lifting the curtain to reveal all these people who think about how to collect and manage and um, care for data long term. And it's it's a very behind the scenes process, but it's so critical to this entire fisheries management process. And I think just realizing how important it was, but also how how hidden it can feel. And so it's kind of exciting to, um, yeah, like I said, lift the curtain and see how all of those things happen. And the, the more you learn, the more you want to know. So it sounded like you talked a little bit about different topics that we could talk about today. Do you want to pick one and start one, or do you want me to pick one from this list? Oh, that's a good question. I think we all have our favorites, but is there something on this list that grabbed your attention because you're most excited to talk about it? I guess we could talk about sort of new uses for ocean and fish data. I haven't gotten into that too much in any of the other episodes. Cool. That was mine. I'm glad you picked that one because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts Woo-hoo! on this. You know, so, so Kate, somebody who has really been, you know, deeply involved in the data world and helping other people understand the data world um, for quite some time, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on kind of how you've seen fisheries data change in the past decade or so. You know, are there kind of new ways that the data is being applied that maybe we didn't think of before? And kind of looking into the future, how and and who might be interested in using fisheries data in the next decade or two? Yeah, I think I've seen in some ways a lot of change and in some ways, you know, not too much change. That's always one of the interesting things about working in fish, right, is that it is an ancient profession where people really pride themselves in some ways on preserving and protecting old tools, right? Like I have a friend who's a professional engine rebuilder and goes all over the world to keep these 
old engines that drive fishing boats around running and, and rebuild them from the valves up. And at the same time, those same boats are using sat phones and high-tech fish finders and sonar to see where the bottom is and putting cameras in their nets to see what they're catching in their nets so that if it's not what they want to catch, they can open up the end of the net. And so it's always been a very interesting space that's kind of high-tech, low-tech at the same time. And I think one of the things that I've seen that's a real difference going forward is is really is people just seeing the benefits of blending that data together to come up with a broader understanding of, of the whole ocean ecosystem, not just one particular species. You know, we do these population assessments, these stock assessments on an individual level, this particular species, or maybe, you know, this particular um, pair of species that are very similar, but we don't always look at the whole ecosystem. And in part, that's because that's been really hard to count all the fish in an area of every species and all the living substrates and habitats that they live on, like seagrasses and kelps and corals. And you know, it's just seemed too hard. That's an enormous amount of work to count all of that. But it's not as much work anymore with underwater ROVs and satellite data and and overflight of micro cube satellites. And so there's a lot of ways to gather data about the ocean that we just didn't have access to before. And so we have this opportunity to create a much fuller picture of what's going on in there. And that used to seem very cutting edge and super like out of reach and expensive. And now I'd say it seems more in reach of even the world of fisheries management, which, you know, let's be clear, we love it dearly and we work in it, but it's not the place that tends to get a ton of money and a ton of attention. So that's maybe one of the things that I think is most exciting about these new developments is that we're starting to synthesize all of these data streams together and see things that were very hard to see before. How does that help us think about, you know, in the last episode, you talked about, you know, data that we keep and data that's kind of served its purpose and we can can let go. You know, how does that help us think about making those decisions of what we want to hang on to and and what we're storing unnecessarily? Oh, Kim, shouldn't we keep everything forever? <laughs> Access and storage? Kim, you've worked in places where and worked with people who are who are gathering this data. So you've You've seen what storage looks like now, right? Yeah, and I'm a keep it forever. Um. <laughs> if you had to make a choice, how are you going to decide? Yeah, I I don't know. This whole um, you know question just kind of has you thinking about, um, you know, like you're saying, like now we've got all sorts of cool new stuff, and it allows us to to draw connections and paint pictures that we didn't know that we could a while back. Um, well, it's like you never know what you're going to need or find useful one day until you go looking for it and you can't find it. Like you might have a great Halloween costume idea and you want to find that, you know, outfit you wore in college and it turns out to be something you gave away. It's kind of like we're collecting all this data now that could have uses we haven't even dreamed about in the future. And it, it's scary to think about letting go of something that we loved and worked so hard to collect and care for. I think that's true. We get attached to data, especially in these new spaces where it feels like maybe we're discovering something for the first time. But I'd 
put the question back to the three of you, which is where have you seen situations where not having access to data has caused problems? Because I do think there's a difference between not getting the data, not collecting the data at all, and then not making that data accessible, right? The data could be there, but if you can't find it, then it might as well not be there at all. So there's kind of a difference between the data existing and you knowing it exists and being able to find it and use it. There are two separate steps and we have to do both. So have there been situations where maybe you knew the data existed or you thought it might exist, but you just couldn't get access to it? Or you've seen a situation in which people have been really frustrated because they just don't have any way to access the data they need? Yeah. And I I think one other aspect to that is that because the data are so complex, maybe the data is accessible, but it's not available in a user-friendly interface, which again, costs money. It takes time for someone to build that interface. Um, But if the goal of the data is to, you know, be used by several different users, um, the data needs to be not only accessible, but also um, in a a user-friendly interface. Yeah, and building on what Emily said, I think there are a lot of cases where we know there are cases where there are confidentiality issues and legal barriers to being able to access certain information and those barriers exist for a reason. But there are also cases where there can be useful collections of data that have just kind of grown organically or they're proprietary or organized a certain way such that maybe only the person who designed that system knows how the data can be used and accessed. And so there's some institutional knowledge that becomes lost when we don't think about how to preserve our data in a way that other people can use and access later. And I think that's one of the challenges as well in terms of, you know, trying to update or change existing data systems is that we don't want to lose that institutional knowledge of how things have always worked, how data systems and infrastructures have always worked. So while it, you know, it is appealing to update data systems and protocols as needed, that also takes a lot of time and effort to sort of relearn and train in those new protocols. So, Kate, when we're ready, we, we have a, when you're ready, we have a million dollar question for you, which is, you're going to like this. So what is a simple definition of data modernization and how do we know when we get there? What is a simple definition of data modernization? Mm, yeah, I think the simple definition I have of data modernization is really being clear on your objectives of the questions that you're trying to solve. And then doing a scan to figure out what are the most up-to-date and efficient ways to get that data to answer the questions. So we say modernization as if it means everything has to be the latest and greatest and fanciest. And I firmly believe that is not necessarily the right choice. It just doesn't have to be the latest tech thing. Fisheries doesn't have to be bleeding edge to be efficient and effective. But that said, there are some amazing innovations out there that could deliver fisheries data more efficiently, more effectively, maybe even lower cost than some of the things we're doing just because we've always done them. So to me, data modernization is about, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to say like Marie condoing your data, but that's not right either. Like I don't want you throwing out data just because it doesn't spark joy or something like that. What I want you to do is like take a look around and be like, hey, Uh, What am I trying to do with all this stuff that's laying around? Oh, okay, this. I'm trying to achieve a population of fish that's going to sustain these fisheries, and it's also going to sustain these other populations of wildlife. Great. Those are my goals. 
what do I need to do to get there? And then you look at what you're doing now and you say, huh, could I, could I improve that? Could I get better? It's almost like just getting a physical from your general practitioner every year and saying, oh, do I need to tweak that? Do I need to do a little more exercise? Do I need to eat a few fewer Oreos? That kind of thing to me is modernization. It's, it's sort of an ongoing upkeep and improvement space. And I love seeing some of these high-tech things come into fisheries. I love seeing that intersection. And I also think that there are some things that you could call modernization that if I said them to somebody in Silicon Valley, they'd look at me like I was a creature from 1995. They'd be like, what? <laughs> that is so not modern. Um, or it's modern in the like 1960s mod way. You know, I was somebody who invested heavily in my mini disc player and collection in the early 2000s. And so I'm curious, how do we make smart decisions about how to invest in our old data systems? So in other words, how do we know when clunky technology can still serve our needs versus when it's worthwhile to invest in kind of the shiny new stuff? Yeah, so that's a big, important distinction between data and the technology you use to collect data. So I think about the people who look at historic logbooks that are handwritten in, you know, ink and calligraphy in a giant bound ledger, right? That's tabular data usually. It's the date, it's what happened on that date, you know, it's a log. So the pa paper technology is still valuable if it can survive all the various fires and floodings and things and still be legible today. But more importantly, the data have been entered and preserved in such a way that you can easily translate them into another form. You can type those into a spreadsheet and work with them from there. So I think it's important to separate the data itself in the media that it's stored on. And that's, you know, what you say about investing in your mini disc player. That's, you know, that's, that is not a small thing. You do want to consider that. You want to make sure you're not writing data into a format that you won't be able to get it out of later. Or part of modernization being kind of an ongoing check-in, check-up phase is to have somebody whose job it is to keep an eye on things and say, hey, it looks like uh, CDs are maybe not the way to go anymore. All this data is stored in a format that we can move it somewhere else. We just pull it off these CDs and put it into whatever the exciting new quantum technology storage is going to be in 20 years. It's kind of like a time travel situation. You want your data to be able to travel through time, regardless of what they've been written on. Are you still sad about your mini discs? No, because people on eBay will pay money for them. <laughs> this is how you subsidize fish life is through sales of your mini discs. I think a lot of data literacy and data management skills evolve organically through doing research and through the process of learning how science is done. Um, and so I think that speaks to the value of kind of tapping into that inherent data knowledge that a lot of us have just from being people living life and learning about how the world works, um, but also the need to consciously develop and cultivate those skills. I think one question I have for you, Kate, as well for you, Katie and Kim, is, you know, in your work and experience now in the sort of data realm, have you learned any new data terms that you had never heard before or any really interesting jargon that you, that's really stuck with you? Yeah, I didn't know that I needed to be as excited about interoperability as I am. Interoperability is great. And that's not even a new term. That's just new to me. Didn't 
it wasn't something that I realized was a thing I needed to think about, but it, it put a name to a lot of the challenges I was seeing as I was trying to map the issues in getting data from when a boat leaves a dock all the way into a management system to make decisions. And that's this idea of that the data is in a format that it can easily be passed from one step of the data chain to another in a way that it can easily be read and translated and understood. And you can have hardware interoperability stuff too, like you need to actually have the same types of physical cameras and connections and cables. But data interoperability is in many ways much more important. And so that's thinking about the data being operable by whoever needs to use it and whatever types of software need to be able to read it. And that's super important. And then does that also apply, you know, not just to thinking about the data lifecycle for one data stream, but also trying to integrate multiple data streams together? Absolutely. That's part of where you get to these ideas of data standards. So the global dialogue on seafood traceability, which is a process that was running for many years to try and get all of the major seafood buyers and suppliers worldwide to agree on standards for their data, including what they were going to collect and what format it was going to be in. And that's where you get into things like, is it going to be day, month, year, or month, day, year? Is it going to be a timestamp in minutes, or is the timestamp going to go all the way to seconds? And some of these things are things that you can find ways to translate through the chain, but some of them are not. When you're talking about a supply chain, things getting a code based on when they enter the supply chain, whether they're transformed into a different product, if they then get transformed into a different product, right? Like you think about a fish, you go out on a boat, you catch a fish, but you catch 40 fish at once. They all go in a hold. Then they go to the dock. Those 40 fish get offloaded, but you didn't necessarily tag and count each one of them individually. So you start with 40 fish, then you sell them to four different people. Each one of those people gets 10 fish. Those 10 fish, which weighed something when they were whole fish, then weigh something else once they've had the heads and the tails trimmed off, and then they become fish sticks or fish fillets. So they've been transformed at so many places from the supply chain. If you wanted to track your fish stick all the way back to the fish from the moment it was caught, there's a lot of places in which you need to tag it with data to be able to move it and move that data with the fish through the entire supply chain. So the Global Dialogue and Seafood Traceability came up with recommendations for not just what the data should be and in what format, but where you should be recording data at a minimum so that you really can track a fish from the hook that goes in the water or whatever the gear is to the moment it arrives on your plate. And that is that kind of standards and interoperability that is really critical to getting a handle on fisheries management worldwide. Awesome. You picked an important word. I mean, I like lots of nerdy data words too, but I also like lots of nerdy fish words, right? You know, like I was talking to somebody about otoliths the other day and they were like, what? And I was like, it's the ear bones of the fish. And they lay down different rings like trees so that you can see how old the fish are, right? So if we could merge the nerdy fish words and the nerdy data words, maybe that's why I like this space is that it's like nerdiness jargon squared, both fish and data. Thanks for listening and joining us for this conversation. If you have your own stories to share about fish and data or insights onto a fishy data topic we didn't cover, send us an email at hello at intertidal.agency. 
In future pods, we'll start swimming out from fish into other developments in conservation, data, and tech. Until then, may your skies be clear and your fish sticks sustainably sourced. This episode was produced by Melanie Scroggins. This whole adventure into podcasting about data and fish was made possible by a grant from the David and Lucille Packard Foundation, who have been incredibly patient and were super hands-off and amazingly supportive when I suggested this idea two years ago. This episode is also brought to you by the mighty Sooty Shearwater, a two-foot-long bird that makes the longest migration of any animal, flying more than 39,000 miles from Alaska to New Zealand in search of love and squid.